until you hit the home run, they're going to doubt you. But once yeah. you hit one home run, everybody, they, you'd want them to, you'd think they'd come back and say, I was wrong and you were right. Yeah. Good luck with that. I, I didn't experience that. Um, yeah. Everyone just shuts up and stops talking. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to The Pursuit. Man, I am so excited about our guest and speaker today and episode today, the one and only Steve Siebold. Many of you, almost all of you, I know you know of Steve. I know most of you guys have his book. Uh, I've certainly talked about a lot on our show. And it's, you know, when I started the podcast, I made a, a list of my dream guests and Steve was right at the top of the list. So I'm so excited to have you here today, Steve. Uh, for those of you that don't know Steve, let me give you a little bit of background. I mean, we are, we're going to hear from, I, I think, the the greatest expert in the world on mental toughness and thinking one of anyways. It's incredible. Author of 12 books. I know last year in 2020, I think your guys' new book, How Money Works, was number one seller in personal finance. And literally, Steve's been on every major television network all across North America. I mean, I don't know how many interviews you've done, probably in the thousands, but we are hearing from one of the world's best experts when it comes to this stuff. So Steve, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I, I want to talk to you about, um, I want to jump into a bit about your story for people that maybe aren't familiar with it. How did you get started on this whole journey of mental toughness, which then led to how rich people think and so much more, but tell us a bit about that. Yeah, basically, I grew up uh, uh, training to be a professional tennis player since I was six years old. So I traveled around the world uh, as a young kid, starting at six and all the way through 18. Then I played Division One college tennis and I uh, went pro for two years. And along the way, I, I, I basically grew up with a lot of rich kids. I was not a rich kid. I was from Chicago, suburb of Chicago, kind of a middle class suburb. And but I grew up with a lot of rich kids and I kind of got intrigued about about their life and their lifestyle. And, you know, you go stay over at their house somewhere if you're playing a tournament out of town and they have tennis courts in their backyards and big pools. And I thought that's kind of cool. So along the way of my tennis journey uh, in 1984, I was a sophomore in college and I started interviewing uh, self-made millionaires. And I, and I, I met one and I had a chance. I thought if I'm ever going to be rich, like one of these people that I, these, these parents of these kids that grew up with, I better learn how they do it. And I wasn't learning it in school. I was kind of frustrated about that in college. Mm -hmm. So I started interviewing these millionaires and it just continued and it continues, continues to this day. It's been since 1984. So that's right now, 37 years and wow. about 1325 or something like that interviews. Wow. And uh, so that's where how rich people think came and people ask about that all the time. How'd you go from mental toughness to how rich people think? It's because I did all these interviews because I wanted to be one of them. And, uh, and I learned a lot about, about the way they think and they, where they process, uh, you know, thoughts about money and thinking about money and strategy and that type of thing. So that's how that whole thing came about. It was totally unintentional. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Uh, that's incredible. And, and when we'll, we'll talk about how rich people think for a little bit. I, I know that the book is amazing. Everybody, if you don't have the book, you got to get the book. It's one of my all time favorites. What would you say, because there's so many great resources in there, but what are the primary differences between maybe average people and how rich people think? I know there's many of them, but what would you say the primary ones are? Yeah, actually, just I just completed yesterday, believe it or not, a video course, the video course for the book, which we've been asked to do. Oh, really? To do for, yeah, about 10, 11 years, people have been saying, can you tell the stories behind the behind the book of all these interviews, of all these millionaires and billionaires? And yeah, I just never yeah. really had time to do it because I've been on the road my whole life pretty much. Right. And uh, so we just finished this video course. It's pretty cool. The first part of the video course, it's about nine hours, nine and a half hours long or something like that. But anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, the primary thing I think is just in general is, Ben, is that it's, they have a healthy, the self-made millionaires have a healthy relationship with money. It all starts, in my mind, it all kind of starts with that. They see money through the eyes of opportunity and freedom and, you know, possibility and dreams. Whereas most of us are programmed, you know, in childhood to think money, well, it's an, you know, it's a necessary evil and, you know, it's not a good thing. And then rich mm -hmm. people are crooks and all these negative connotations to money. So why would, you know, I ask in the book, why would anyone, you know, go after something they've been pre-programmed to, uh, to disdain. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so people don't, people deny the money, that money's important and all that. And it's absolutely one of the most important things in life, even though it's not the most important thing, it's certainly one of them. Absolutely. But if I keep denying it's important, why would I ever try to attain it? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's so true. And it, I think it's so interesting how, when we're not aware of that, of how much we, we may have been programmed or thinking that, of course, then we're always dumbfounded. Why am I not getting the success I want? Why is, yeah. um, which actually brings me, you know, a little bit, I want to talk about this one here 
uh, little expanded ideas on this in 177, 177 Mental Toughness Secrets, you talk about the idea of champions separating truth from fact. Can you expand on that idea and maybe even how that would apply in this scenario? Yeah, boy, that's, that's a good timing on that question. Yeah. Uh, you know, with all the craziness, especially in the States here, all this craziness, all these conspiracy theories and people literally just making stuff up and then millions of people believe it overnight. Right. I mean, I it's just... I just don't even know what to think anymore about that. So yeah, we, we just, we just make the separation between truth and fact. We say that fact is objective reality. It, this happened, it's documented, you know, right. it, it, it actually happened. And truth is, um, you know, when people say, well, you know, I'm speaking my truth or I'm living my truth. Well, that's their version of the truth. It's not actually objective reality. It's, mm. it's subjective reality by definition. So the truth is, is more of an emotional, you know, a wishful thinking kind of a thing. Whereas, whereas in this particular example, and, Fact is objective reality. And for those that, when you, I, I love how you talk about truth because it's subjective and that you can almost create your own truth and how champions put that into their favor, right? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's exactly, yeah. And in some ways it can be great. I mean, if it's, if we're talking about conspiracy theories and people making stuff up, well, then it's obviously negative. But yeah, in terms of the way I really, the reason I wrote that in that book was because yeah. Yeah, it's for the positive connotation, as you're mentioning, that people can say, hey, you know what, I'm a champion and I'm a comeback artist and I'm going to make it. And I always do what I say with it. Even if I'm making that up and I have never done what I said I'm going to do and I've never been a champion, I can talk myself into it. And that doesn't hurt anyone else. That just propels me forward as a performer. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm literally programming myself, even though you know, factually speaking, these things aren't true, but I'm, but I'm programming myself into it. And that's why I wrote it in the book. Of course, you know, you can take it on the negative side, which we've seen a lot of now in society, but in terms of performance, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful tool. Yeah. And I, I think that's so much everybody. I mean, the story you're telling yourself, you're always telling yourself a story. You're always telling yourself some kind of truth. It's the question is, is it serving us to become the best version of ourselves? Are we achieving what we want through that story? And then like Steve's talking about, if you can alter it to create more empowering stories and more empowering beliefs. That's where the magic is. And I'm curious too, I obviously wrote in the book, so I know it's the case after all these years of studying all these wealthy and successful people, I'm, nothing ends up in that book if it wasn't a part of that. And I think sometimes people think that, well, people that are successful, somehow they were always that way, or they were born into it or whatever it might be, where I think the reality is that maybe a few of them were, but most of them were people that understood this idea and took control of their programming. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, one of the, the the most common questions I've gotten in the press over the last, you know, especially 15 years where I'm doing, you know, I've done thousands of interviews all over the world, as you, as you mentioned, it's just part of our business model. Mm -hmm. um, people say, well, the, the reporters will say, what's, this is the most common question. I'll say, okay, what, what's the most common theme that the, these self-made millionaires and billionaires talked with you about during these interviews? What's the thing they talk about the most? And it's overwhelming one thing. And they're always surprised, failure. They, their story is a story of, of failure for the, for 95% mm. of it, for most of these people, it's, mm. it's the, how they failed in the beginning and how they doubted themselves and they, they lost money and they went bankrupt, they got divorced and they, and no one believed them and they failed over and over. And then boom, they hit a home run and everyone goes genius guys, right. a genius woman's <laughs> a genius. I mean, it's everything they touch turns to gold and they laugh about it because typically everything they touched, you know, failed until the home run. And now everyone forgets that, you know, Babe Ruth was the strikeout king as well as the home run king. Right. <laughs> but yeah. people forget about the, the, the strikeouts. They just see the home runs, which yeah. is a good thing in a way. But that's what they talk about is they basically fail their way to success. Hmm. Hmm. Why, why do you think at the middle class level, so many people are trying to avoid failure? I think failure has been demonized. It's, it's been, it's been put down as, as you're, you're, if you fail, you're a loser, you fail, you're somehow not as smart as someone else, or you don't work as hard, or, uh, you know, you just don't have it. You don't have the it factor, whatever, you know, you can use all these different ways to define it. So I think we, we, we're, we're programmed with that, it, you know, from the time we're kids. And then we, we go out, we strike out on our own. We're all excited. You know, we're going to be an entrepreneur, let's say, or we're going to try something that that's sort of out of the norm. And people mm -hmm. say, don't do it. Don't do it. That's not the way to do it. You know, you're, you're playing it. You're, you're playing it too loose. You're, you're taking too many chances. Now we fail and we mm -hmm. go, oh, and everyone says, I told you, I told you so. You mm -hmm. should have never done that. We all told you so. I don't know why you didn't listen to us. And then they go, okay, yeah, I'm, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. And then we, we, we shrivel up and we go back to, to, to life in the masses and never to be heard from again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because that whole idea of just 
a lot of the people around, especially if, if we grow up in kind of more of a middle-class environment, well, of course they have middle-class beliefs, right? Middle-class thinking and that idea of, I told you so, I told you so, which actually brings me to one of my questions. I've heard you talk about many, many times, uh, just this idea of the most debilitating addiction in the world is the approval addiction. And can you expand on that? And then not only expanding on it, but then can we talk about a couple of tips? How do I start to break that cycle? Yeah. I mean, I've done whole seminar tours, literally 40 mm. city tours on approval addiction around the world. And, and because it's such a big deal because approval addiction, you know, I mean, it's in our DNA. I mean, it's probably been passed down through evolution, I suppose, over at least a couple hundred thousand years where if you don't, if you didn't get the approval of, you know, the bigger people, the more powerful people, the tribe, you know, they, you starved to death. I mean, you died. You know, when you're a kid, you need approval of your parents and your teachers and your coaches and your ministers and your, you know, Boy Scout leaders or whatever, you know, people of influence or, or power. And if you don't get their approval, if you don't do what they want, then you suffer for it. So we, we learn to become addicted to approval because, because it works for us. And then it, and it really, well, what I found during the research over these years, Ben, is that it really does work actually for more, for most people until they strike out on their own and they start, again, they go outside of the norm where people mm -hmm. go, oh, you really shouldn't do that. Like becoming an entrepreneur is mm -hmm. probably you know, one of the best examples, if not the best example. Mm -hmm. They become an entrepreneur and again, and then they fail. And then and then people say, well, I told you so, same kind of thing. And, and then they they literally feel in their body. They they feel it in everything. They feel bad about themselves. They feel stupid. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they shrivel up. And so now it's a, a case of as long as you approve the people around me I care about and maybe even strangers, as long as you approve of what I'm doing, I'm going to be okay. But if you don't, uh, I, I can't really afford um, psychologically, emotionally hmm. to go there. And I think that's why most entrepreneurs fail because they don't realize they're approval addicts before they enter a business. Mm -hmm. And if you don't realize that, because most of us are. Mm -hmm. And if you don't realize that, then you're 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 bound to. If you do fail, unless you succeed right off the bat, which few people do, you're probably going to struggle with that. And you're probably going to quit and go back and get a job and just sort of disappear into the masses. Hmm. Hmm. So all that being said, so let's say, okay, I, I want to break free of that. I realize I have it. What are some practical tips on how do I get out of that approval addiction? Oh, it's funny. This is this is uh, this goes back to the 1940s. A South African. A psychiatrist was working with um, with people with phobias, let's say like a snake phobia, you know, and he realized that the secret to overcoming a phobia is to is 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 to basically expose the person to the phobia. Let's say it's it called a snake. They would start out. He would start out. He was the foremost researcher in this area. He would start out showing people a picture of a snake. Hmm. And people would literally freak out because there were some people and it was really a severe uh, homophobia. Uh, they yeah. would they would freak out just at the picture. Yeah. And then he would show them a snake 20 feet away, a real snake in a cage, and they would freak out again, but not as much because he kept showing it to them over and over. And mm -hmm. finally, by the end of the six months or whatever it was based on the severity of the of the phobia, um, it would it would be a situation where they were holding the snake a lot of times in their hand and saying it's just a snake. It's not a big deal. You know, they're, they're not, they're really pretty harmless if they're not poisonous and they would not be addicted to it. And so what he said, it, it's, it's a, it's a matter of systematic desensitization is what he called it mm. uh, or systematically desensitizing emotionally uh, to the uh, you know, the, the, the event or the, or the, the phobia, whatever it is. And it turns out that with approval addiction, it's the exact same thing. So it's not the easy answer because there's no, you can't just read a book, I don't think, and overcome it. You have to go through the gauntlet. You have to say, you know what? I, I, I realize I'm an addict yeah. and what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to be disapproved of and I'm going to have to take the pain, feel the pain, accept it, you know, and say, I'm, I'm an addict. That's why I feel bad when you reject me. And when you say I shouldn't have done it and you just disapprove of me in general, I feel it. But if, if I keep going through it and I keep moving forward, eventually when you disapprove of me, I won't feel it. There will be no emotional consequence to uh, your disapproval of me. And that's when you've gone through the, uh, you've broken the addiction. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I remember you talking about the concept of champions over time. They learn to kind of link the equation of rejection or this, you know, not getting approval to success in a way. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost a badge of honor because it's just, you know, you think of all the, 
if you if you've built businesses, you know we've built businesses for 35 years, and and some successful and some unsuccessful, and and more unsuccessful than successful, like typical serial entrepreneurs do. You know, you start something up, you think it's a great idea, you put a bunch of money in, you get investors sometimes, whatever you do, and all of a sudden you wake up one day and go, oh shoot, I blew that one. You know, my last one about five years ago, I lost four million dollars. I invested eight million, and I came back with four. And uh, I'm a co-author of a book called How Money Works, Ben. That's not the right way to do it. Something's wrong with that scenario. You're just to come out with more money, I think, than yeah. less. But, you know, I just mistimed the market. I made a couple of mistakes, and I didn't really realize it until about two years in. I realized I'm going to lose the other $4 million if I don't, uh, if I don't, if I don't close up shop. So I divested, got rid of all the – I had 20-something employees, got rid of all the employees, and, um, and shut the thing down before I lost any more money and cut my losses. And I think that, you know, and, and uh, there were people that criticized that, but, you know, once you have some successes and people usually don't say too much, but mm -hmm. when I failed at businesses in the past, uh, you know, you talk to people, when I, I'd, I'd fail at some business I started up years ago and I talked to, then I'd be in, in an interview with the, and I feel terrible about it because I was an approval addict like everybody, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, then I do an interview with a self-made millionaire and I'd tell them a story and I'd, they'd say, oh, I'd say, oh yeah, they say, how's it going? You know, I got known pretty well in those, pretty well in those circles. And I'd say, well, you know, I lost, uh, you know, I invested $86,000 or whatever it was. And, um, and I lost it all because I did this and they'd laugh. And I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, oh, I, I'm losing sleep over it. Devastated. Yeah. And they're laughing. They go, what's what, why, why do you think that's such a big deal? And they go, well, it's a lot of money. They go, well, yeah, you know, it relatively it's, it's, it's a lot of money, but that's the game. You're, you're an entrepreneur. We've all lost lots of money more than that, less than that, whatever. It's all the same. You've yeah. got to get used to this because that's the game you're in. You're mm. probably going to have big wins and big losses and, and somewhere in between, but you're going to have to, they would laugh at almost every person laugh. And I'm, I'm losing sleep over it and they're laughing and I'm thinking, what am I missing? Why, why are they laughing? And I'm not, cause I'm saying, oh, my, you know, my, my family's doubting me and my friends are doubting me and people don't, and they're going, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the club. That's yeah. the entrepreneur club. Welcome. It's like, you've got to get used to all that or you're, or you'll, or you're never going to make it. Wow. And I finally started getting it, you know, starting realizing that it was me. I was the problem. And uh, that really helped a lot. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not painful when you lose, of course, or when you fail. But mm -hmm. you, you realize it's a bad. It's almost a badge of honor. You're you're in a very elite club once you failed at a business. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny, but it, it, it's not fun. But it but it is it is that's kind of the way it is. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so unique. I mean, you, you know, the business we're in. But I mean, so many people that start, they're often at times their friends and family are doubting them. Right. Oh, you, are, you, are you a millionaire yet? Did you make your first million? And, and all the criticism that comes along with it. And I think at times people think, I know in recruiting and training people, that often people think, oh, this is happening to me, right? This is somehow unique to me. But you just described it so well that that's the entrepreneurial journey. I mean, it really is, is where in the beginning, I think probably most people may not believe in you. And then it becomes breaking through that cycle of the approval addiction and everything we've talked about. Oh yeah, I remember Bezos back in the '90s. Jeff Bezos, of course, now is the richest person in the world currently. Mm -hmm. um, and even he got divorced, and he's still the richest guy in the world, which yeah. is pretty crazy, yeah. you know. But um, he just, you know, sent a, sent a, went up in space the other day, right? That's right. Yeah. But I remember people laughing at Jeff Bezos in in the in the millionaire kind of self-made millionaire, billionaire world. And, that, and I was in the heart of that whole thing in the 90s because I was really interviewing a lot of people. And yeah. Bezos was like a standing joke. Not 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 just for the public, but, but what he was proposing with Amazon when he started Amazon and some of the other things he was doing, people were laughing at him saying, you know, I mean, he's losing money like crazy and everything. And he just kept going along. And, and then of course he creates Amazon, which is I think one of the greatest companies ever. Yeah. And, uh, and now, and now people are no longer laughing so much. And that, that's, I think once you hit the home run, if people are listening to this, you know, and they're thinking, well, yeah, you don't, you know, that's great for you guys. You're down the road, whatever. But until you hit the home run, they're going to doubt you. But once yeah. you hit one home run, everybody, they, you'd want them to, you'd think they'd come back and say, I was wrong and you were right. Yeah. Good luck with that. I, I didn't experience that. Um, yeah. Everyone just shuts up and stops talking. I have yeah. relatives. Yeah. I mean, that, that just would, would, you know, that were critical and whatever. And I heard through the little grapevine, you know, back in the day before you, you do something decent size, uh, a good win that they would be saying things. Now, nobody ever, I'll go to a, to a family function. No one even mentions anything like nothing has said, no, no congratulations, <laughs> nothing. Just it's like, you don't exist. It's like you're invisible. So they, they're not going to probably give it to you. Like, right. you know, I was wrong and you were right, but right. they'll stop, they'll, they'll stop doubting you because you've hit the home run and almost nobody does that in a society. You know? It's yeah. It's so true. I, I remember my biggest critic in the beginning, gave me the hardest time when I started a business. 
And then we, we parted ways, hadn't talked to him and saw him seven years later. And I was doing, you know, somewhat well in business. And we ended up at a poker tournament, saw him there. And he asked how things were going. And I told him, told him the truth. And he goes, oh man, that's awesome. I always knew you were going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you get some of those too. Yeah, right. It's like, really? I don't yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know what though? I, I think that for a lot of people too, sometimes you can turn that when, when others may be doubting or others may be criticized, whatever it might be. So I think some champions turn that into fuel for, I'm going to make this happen. Oh yeah. No, no question about it. Yeah. I, I had a cousin um, who, who inherited a bunch of money and it never worked a day in his life, inherited millions and millions of dollars from one of my uncles. And uh, one time I, I was starting my first business right after college. And I really thought it was going to be big. It didn't turn out to be big, but I was in the middle of the startup and I was excited and I was working at a gas station pump back when you pumped gas, you know, this is a long time ago. Um, I was working 11 PM to 7 AM and uh, so it's a little bit dangerous too to work the night shift back then. And I was pumping gas, you know, and, and I remember seeing him. He inherited all this money. He was older than me, about 20 years older. And he said, Hey, Steve, great, great job. I hear you're pumping gas for a living. Glad that college education really paid off for you. Mm-hmm. And and that and I and I'll never forget, I remember exactly where it was. This is, you know, this is 30 plus years ago. And I remember exactly how I felt, and I carried that with me and fueled me. No pun intended, but the gas. But, <laughs> yeah. I feel it kind of fueled me. And I said something to him once once we started to break through and have some success. I said something to him about 15 years later, and he had no recollection of that saying that at all. He said it probably as a joke and he's being yeah, stupid. Yeah. And he walked away. He was going to his car, I remember, at his office, and he drove away and probably never thought twice about it. But I it stuck with me and it sticks to me to this day to this day. But it, it fueled me because I thought, okay, I'll, I'll you know, wait. Let's let's give it some time. You inherited your money. I'm out there on the street. Yeah. you know, working for it. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And, um, and it, it, things, I won't go into the details. Cause it's a family member, but let's, it's neat. It's just suffice it to say things turned around completely. You know, he didn't, he went to the bottom and I went, I went higher. And so it was yeah. like, it was a, at least a good, I didn't want him to suffer, but it was a good feeling to, uh, to, to beat the, uh, you know, to beat that a little bit. So a hundred percent. And for everybody listening, if you think about that is use that, right. Can you can use those moments. So if you have people in your life that are maybe like that cousin for Steve, Hey, that's okay. We all do use it, use it for fuel, use it to help you get to the level you need to. And, and yeah, it's good. I, I want, I want to hear you talk about this idea. Cause I, I love one of my favorite chapters in the book is where you talk about the five levels of mental toughness and moving from competing to creating. And I think it's just such such a, a beautiful concept. Can you expand a bit on that idea for everyone? Yeah, basically, it's we took it sort of over like a after like a, an Abraham Maslow kind of hierarchy, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So basically, it just starts out with you know people playing playing not to lose, which is what most people do. They do it in sports, you know. In sports, that's a very common phrase saying you're you're playing not to lose. You're trying to protect your yourself. You're trying to call it close, but you're not really trying to win. You're not taking enough risk to try to win. I think that, you know, most people in society, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or anywhere in the free world, you know, people are kind of trained and programmed in school and by parents. And, you know, they're, they're trying to protect us. I mean, from from pain, obviously. But mm-hmm. we're playing not to lose. We're trying to play defense all the time and not suffer too much pain. And that's the goal of our life. So the old joke is, you know, uh, you get to heaven and St. Peter says, congratulations, you've arrived safely at death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, I made it. You know, this is fantastic. And so I, then it goes all the way up to, to really playing. There's different levels, but playing to compete, yeah. you know, is, is one of the ones. What, what I found is a lot of people think that's the highest level. And yeah. most psychologists, performance psychologists disagree and say competing competition is not the highest level because it's ego-based, especially in business. Right. Because what you do in your business is completely do what I what differently than what I do, even if we're in the same business, just because you approach it a different way. Mm-hmm. You might have way more talent than me, way more education, you might be just smarter than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got whatever I've got. So it's really not even a level comp- playing field in terms of competitiveness. And, um, and so competition is almost a, just an ego trip. You know, just for people to say, well, I'm better than you because I scored higher, or I made more money or I, you know, live in a bigger house or a small, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, um, and it's kind of, it's kind of lower level. So they say the highest level in performance, performance psychology is playing to, to, to create mm-hmm. where you say, you know, Ben, I'm, I, whatever you have, man, I'm, I just wish the best for you. And I wish the best for me and everybody else. I'm just trying to use what I have, whatever resources I have, whatever education, intelligence, et cetera, to create what I can create. And you might be way better, smarter, whatever. And I, I'm glad for you about that, but here's what I can do. So I'm just kind of in a business by myself where I'm trying to create my own future. And, uh, and, 
and uh, and do what I'm capable of doing, even if it's not anywhere near what you're capable of doing. This is the best I can do. And I'm creating mm -hmm. my own future instead of competing with you and everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's so great because I, I know I had a, a season in my life where competition was a big part of it. And then realizing, and it was a lot through studying your work, but just realizing, well, why does it matter what somebody else is doing or not doing? How does that actually affect my life in any way? And it's, it's such an interesting concept. I, I, I want to hear your thoughts. I don't know the answer to this. Do you find most people have to kind of grow and evolve to that level? Do they go through the different stages do you find, or can you just jump to that highest level of thought? I think you can. I don't think most of us do. I think because we're so, uh, you know, especially the, the States is a funny place, you know, just traveling around the world for so long, you know, for so many years. And you know, I find that even Canada, even those closest we are, you know, in so many ways, we're so close. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, physically close as well, you know, um, logistically. But mm -hmm. I, I think the U.S. is, is a little is, is sort of an anomaly in terms of we're so competitive and we're so uh, you know, success, you know, all around the world, not so much in Canada, but all over the world, they call us, you know, you're success crazy. You know, the U.S. is success crazy. And mm -hmm. I think there's probably some validity to that. You mm -hmm. know, I, even in Canada, even when I work in Canada and I do book signings and stuff, I find that the, the society is, is quite different. I think you guys are more like, in my opinion, um, like the U.K., you know, more low key. You guys are less ego driven. This is just my opinion, but right. less ego driven. Of course, I'm stereotyping, but I think there's some validity to it where we, we, we've got this thing about, well, we're the greatest country in the world and we're this and we're that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, maybe in some ways we, we, we are, you know, we're a very strong country in some ways. In other ways, we're not a strong country. We, we, we suck in some ways and Canada is a better country in some ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, and the UK and all different kind of, you know, free world countries. But, um, but I think that at the end of the day, I think that if you, if you come from not ego, but from a spirit-based consciousness, not like in the context of religion, although mm -hmm. that if, if people are religious, they could they could connect it. But just spirit in the sense of you're coming from your own human spirit and you're mm -hmm. saying, you know, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to wish you the best and I'm going to do the best I can. I hope for the, the best for everybody, but I'm not really in a competition with you. I'm mm -hmm. in a competition really with me just to see if I can be better today than I was yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think most people reach it. But yes, I to your question, I, I think people can make that leap. I was certainly in competitive mode for a long time being an athlete because mm -hmm. everything's based on winning and losing. Of course. Then I, you know, yeah, you wake up. I, I, I'll tell you the exact story. I, I remember playing. I was playing um, a guy in Florida, and he was uh, four or five years younger than me. And I was on the pro tour, and I was about 500, ranked about 500 in the world, my best day. And this guy was coming up. He was ranked 618 in the world. And I thought, well, he can't be that good because I'm not that good, and I'm 500. And I played him, and I just couldn't believe how talented he was. He was just so gifted. I'd never seen anybody hit a tennis ball like that, even though I was ranked ahead of him yeah. at that time. This was back in the 80s. And um, and it was Andre Agassi, oh. you know, who became, you know, this great yeah. star. And I was on his coaching team after that a couple of years yeah. ago, or yeah. a couple of years after. But, you know, my point is, is that I realized, I remember training with Agassi one day, we were doing this drill, uh, serve and volley drill, they call it, back in the day. And uh, and I said, I don't understand how you can see the ball so soon. You're, you're returning a 130-mile-an-hour serve from this guy we used to train with named Tim Mayotte, who was one of the biggest servers in the world at that time. He had 130-mile-an-hour serve a lot of times. And Agassi was taking an eight-foot backswing. And, and it was just him, the three of us, doing this drill. And I'm just blocking the ball, trying to just see the ball in time to just get it back over the net before Matt put it away on us. And Agassi's taking an eight-foot backswing. So how do you see it so early? He goes, yeah. Steve, you know, you got to focus. It's in your head. I'm like, no, it's not. You see that ball before I do. That's the difference. Yeah. And I mean, and, and he, and he realized that eventually he was probably the best return of, you know, serve returner in the world in the history of the game or one of them hmm. uh, because he saw it early. But point is, Ben, is that it's a talent. I mean, he was born with that. He didn't develop that. He was born with that. I can do that my whole life and never even come close to what he was doing. And most people couldn't even pro players, but it's a talent. So how do I compete with someone that was born with a talent? I clearly don't have. There's right. no, it makes no logical sense to competition. A lot of ways makes no logical sense for mm -hmm. the high performing, the person that really wants to go forward, especially in business, mm -hmm. comparing yourself to other people is, is a, is a real, can be a real albatross in business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story, by the way. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's so much it is. And I think the other thing I've noticed too, is that, and I want to hear your thoughts on this idea too, is that generally I find if, if you're stuck in maybe that playing to compete, it's pretty tough to be really happy in your life if you're always competing, comparing. Do you agree on that concept? 
Yeah, because you, you probably aren't looking at the people that you're beating. You're probably looking at the mm-hmm. people who are beating you, right? Mm-hmm. It's like giving a speech, right? You're, you're a presentation of any kind. You know, you're in the audience. Everyone's kind of looking at like they like what you're doing. But there's one yeah. person that's falling asleep. That's there's right. always one. <laughs> they're, they're there purposely. You know, if there's yeah. a God anywhere out there, I'm not sure there is. But if there is, he's putting them in that room just to just to t- do this to you. And I think. Yeah. Um, and they're just falling asleep or they don't, or they're looking at you like, what are you talking yeah, about? Arms crossed, yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and that's the one you focus on. You're thinking yeah. I'm going to get that guy, no matter what, you know, I'm going to get yeah. him to pay attention to like what I'm saying. And I think that's the problem is, you know, we look at the people are beating us and you think, and it's easy to do. I, mean, I still do it too. You look at people and go, how are they so far ahead of me mm-hmm. or making more money or getting more of this or that, you know, whatever it is. I mean, am I, and that, and are they that much smarter? They much, and suddenly you feel worse afterwards than you did before mm-hmm. and it's no good because you have no idea what the circumstances are nor do they really matter at the end of the day yeah. you know it's yeah. easy i mean it's easy to say and hard to do i get it and, I, and again i still fall into the trap too but boy it's a formula for unhappiness because mm-hmm. no matter how successful you are or how rich you are or how good looking you are or how whatever you are there's always someone either better or right behind you that will be better tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah you can't win you know at yeah. the end of the day with that kind of philosophy yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that it plays into that idea of just kind of scarcity and lack and a lot of times versus the idea the, of love and abundance that you talk so much about. It's, it's just awesome. Um, can you, can you talk a bit about, I, again, I, I just, I love this book. Again, if you don't have the book, you got to get the book. This is literally, I don't know how many books I've read at this stage of my life. Got to be in thousands now. And this, anytime someone asks me, you know, what, what are the top three books you'd recommend? It's always in that list. I mean, it's just, it's such a great resource. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, studied lots under Bob Proctor. I know he's a great friend of yours and, and you had worked with them and mentored with him for a long time. And I know he's talked about this idea, but I want to hear your, your spin on, and I know you talked about in the book, but the idea of using our imagination and how the world-class is constantly using their imagination. Can you expand on that? Yeah, Bob Proctor is one of the greats of all time. I mean, uh, he's 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 been a mentor of mine for you know close to thirty years now, and a great friend. We traveled all over the world, giving speeches together, and hmm. you know doing business. We did tons of business together, and just uh, he's 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 one of the greats, no question about that. Yeah, and he loves to talk about imagination, and I'm pretty sure I don't know anyone who talks about it better than Bob. Uh, hmm. But I think that if you can't imagine the future that you want to create, that you're probably not going to get there. I think you have to see it before. You know, I mean, I mean, Bob used to talk to me about that all the time when I was becoming a professional speaker. Uh, you know, we were traveling. My business partner was a gentleman named Bill Gove, who was also Bob Proctor's mentor in speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met Bob many years ago. And um, and, and and Bob, Bob, so many times, you know, would say, you know, what, what do you we're going out? We literally were speaking at one point together for about three years in the 90s. We were speaking me and Bill Gove and Bob Proctor were speaking to oh, between five and ten thousand people a week. It was wow. just and we, Europe, Australia, Scandinavia, of course, Canada with Air Canada Center in Toronto. I don't know how many times yeah. we worked Air Canada with Bob, but yeah. lots of times. And, you know, he's just the best. And uh, but he would say, you know, is, is this what you imagined? I mean, can, what's the future? I mean, he's always he was he's always to this day. I mean, I talked to him oh, a couple of weeks ago when it was during his birth, it was his birthday. He just turned 87. I think it was yeah. on July 5th. Yeah. yeah and so and he's doing great. He's like he's you know, he's like he's 18. He's got so much energy. Yeah. But I think that, you know, he makes that point really well that you have to that you have to see it before. And then and you have to believe it's possible. And everyone else, you tell people about your, your vision and your imagination. and They think you're crazy. Yeah. And, and maybe you are to some point, but you're not going to get there or have a chance of getting there until you, you know, Bob, I think until you can see it. And I think what Bob says, if you, if you can tell me what, if, if you can, what did he say? What does he say? I should know this stuff. If you can hold it in your hand, you can, well, if, you, if you can, if you can see it in your mind, you can hold it in your hand. That's the one. I should know yeah. that. So I've been yeah. here. He's been saying that to me for 30 years. I should know it. Yeah. I, I got some great Proctor stories for you for another time, but uh, uh, just backstage stuff that nobody knows. They're just great. Stories. Oh man. would love to hear those. <laughs> well, during he, he had his 80th birthday at the Bellagio. They threw a birthday party for him, and there were about a hundred of us there. Uh, this is, you know, well, I guess seven years ago at the Bellagio in Vegas. And we, I told some stories, some some uh, stories no one's ever heard before, except just to, between me and Bob and Bill Gove, and uh, just great stuff. But, but suffice it to say, everyone listening to this should study Bob Proctor because he's just the best. He yeah, really is. He yeah. incredible, incredible. Um, I, I want to. Uh, I got two young kids. They're five and three. I know a lot of our listeners have kids. I want to hear your thoughts on all these years of studying all these world-class people. Of course, you've seen them raise their kids and, and what's happened with them and learn tips. 
Give us some of the tips on twofold. I, I want to hear some tips on building mental toughness in our kids, but also some tips on helping them think properly, helping them, you know, how rich people think. How do we help raise rich kids? Yeah, they seem to go two ways. Now, I don't have kids, so I'm certainly not a, a child rearing expert of any shape or form. So keep that in mind mm -hmm. you know, that I'm a total amateur speaking here out loud. So I probably mm -hmm. didn't have the right to say it. But the, the one thing I, I have had some experience with is just observing the children of these self-made millionaires and billionaires I've interviewed over the over the years. And it seems like they go one or two ways extreme. They either rebel against everything and they go rogue mm -hmm. against everything that the, the person is trying to, you know, program them positively to uh, to do, or they really dive into it and say, you know, this is my hero. I'm going to do this stuff. And and when they do, of course, they they're they're hard to beat. I mean, I've literally seen some of these kids without funding from their parents become millionaires in their twenties. I mean, I give you lots of examples and I've also seen some of them jump off bridges and become drug addicts and all that. And I don't know what, what the difference is in parenting. Cause again, I'm unqualified right. to answer the question. I'm not sure what happens there if they can control it or not, but I would say, you know, I would start out if I were, was a parent and I'm not, but if I was, what I would do is I would start out with approval addiction. I would mm -hmm. prepare them. I was on Fox uh, news in Chicago yesterday and they were, they asked a similar question about raising kids in terms of money and the whole context. And I said, you know, what I would do is I would teach them that the world is a rough place. Give them, give it to them straight. Tell them what it is. The mm -hmm. world is tough. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to have to accept criticism, which means you're going to, you can't be addicted to the approval of other people. Listen to what they have to say and thank them for their criticism or their advice or whatever, and then go on, evaluate it, and then move forward. But don't let it stop you if you disagree with it, mm -hmm. you know, and realize that there are people out there that just don't want you to win. That's just, the world is a tough place. You know, I think that that's one of the things that self-made millionaires do with their kids. I, I wrote a book called Secret Self-Made Millionaires Teach Their Kids hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, in 2018. Okay. And it made the cover of Money Magazine and it made that made the book, basically. You know, Money Magazine is out of business yeah. now, but but it made the cover. And and basically what I talked about, this is one of the things I talked about in that book was, was that they prepare, I think it's the first chapter from that, if I'm not mistaken, they prepare their kids to say, look, the world is a beautiful place and it's a brutal place. You know, it's both. It's kind of a dichotomy, but that's what it is. It's 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 terrible and it's wonderful. But mm -hmm. you got to know both sides, I think. And you pre they prepare their kids for what it really is, as opposed to what they wish it were. There's no fantasy thinking in their training, for the most part, that I observe. So I think one of the things is you're going to get criticized. That's what I was talking about on Fox in Chicago yesterday. You're going to get criticized, telling their kids this for almost everything you do, especially when you step out of the norm. They're going to come at you and they're going to come at you hard. So you better be ready for it. And you better be tough enough. Or if you're not, you're going to have to go back and stand in line with the masses. And if you're okay with that, that's, that's fine. You can be happy doing that. That's not a problem. But mm -hmm. if you want to stake your own claim, you're going to have to realize the way it is and you're going to have to be tough enough to take it. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. I've often wondered, um, you know, obviously we're all doing the best we can, but how can I help prepare them in the best way I can for, and I like that, uh, the reality of life. Right. And preparing them for that. And I think yeah, I'll tell you, just as just as a recommendation that we put a workbook together. I did this purposely just as a legacy thing for, and again, I'm not a parent, but I mm -hmm. thought if I was a parent, it'd be really cool to have like a workbook with mm -hmm. this, with that secret self-made millionaires teach your kids. But what most okay. people do around the world with that book, when they tell me in book signings is they, cause I did a whole tour for it after I wrote the book. Um, we, they download the workbook. It's, it, I forget the address, but it's in, it's in like the front page of the book or whatever. It's a free download. You yeah. download the workbook and then they fill the workbook out with their kids as they're reading mm. them the book and reading and you read it together with them is the idea. Mm. I tell you, you know, and, and again, if I was smart enough to write all those things in that book, that'd be great. But I got it from all these millionaires. I mean, yeah. I just took what they told me and put it in a book, you know, right. Like right. Okay. but the stuff in that book, I've never, I mean, some of the stuff I've read, but a lot of the things that people would be kind of shocked that these millionaires teach their kids that most people don't ever teach their kids. Hmm. And it's more about, it's, 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 I think Ben, what it really is, is it's, it's, uh, it's grounded more again in objective reality. They're telling them, here's the way it really is all the way around. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. You hmm. know, I'm not telling them they're, they're taking away Santa Claus. I'm just hmm. telling you in, in general, when it comes to real important things, they're saying, here, here's the way it really is out there. I want you to be prepared. So when you go out there by yourself and there's no one to protect you, you're not going to get killed. You're mm -hmm. going to be, you're going to say, dad told me this. Mom told me this. They told me it would be this way. And they were right. And they, and so people fill the workbook out. So I encourage people, if they read that book, get the workbook and fill it out. People do it all over the world. I get these stories all the time. It's pretty cool. That is so cool. I'm excited to get that. 
I, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's awesome. I wish I'd have had that as a kid and someone would have told me all these things I had, you know, like all of us have to learn on the, you know, on the street. It's kind of yeah. learning, learning sex. You don't know. No one says, here's exactly what it is and what it's not and what to avoid. Don't say this. Don't do this. You know, you sort of learn it from your friends that don't know anything either. And yeah, for you sure. Stumble into it. You know? yeah. And it's, and this is obviously much more important than that. And we don't, they don't teach us this stuff, yeah. you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. And I think again, I mean, Steve's done all this work, all these interviews, all these, all, all the time he spent time, energy, and money into this stuff that literally we can take this. This is, I think is one of the most amazing things. You know, another favorite chapter is, is number 177 schools never out for the great ones is one of my favorites, but this idea of, okay, you spent all this time interviewing all these people. We can take what they've done, learn it and apply it. Right. So perhaps as you're listening, you're thinking, well, I'm not wealthy right now. How can I teach my kids how to be wealthy? Well, you can start teaching some of these ideas and borrow them from people that were right and help prepare them. Yeah, you're totally right, Ben. I mean, one of the one of the people I interviewed many years ago was a gentleman, a billionaire named Walter Haley. Mm. And he was, a, he was about five foot one, little short guy, built multimillion dollar businesses in the 1950s and 60s. He was in the Lyndon Johnson administration in the States in, at, the, at the White House. Uh, just a brilliant, just a guy that was just born with so much talent. It was ridiculous. And he lived in San Antonio, Texas in the Hill Country. And after I interviewed him years later, when I became a speaker, um, he used to hire me to speak. And he picked me up in a Rolls Royce limousine. I've never seen one before since. A Rolls Royce limousine at the San Antonio airport. And, then he, and he'd be in the back of the car. Usually they pick you up. If you're speaking, they pick you up in a something, but sometimes a limo. And you'd be in the back and there's a driver. Well, he would sit in the back with me and ride about 45 minutes to an hour to the Hill Country. And he would coach me. And it was, mm. you're getting coached by a multi-billionaire. And the thing that remind that, that I'm, I, I, he's passed away since, but uh, that he used to say to me so many times over the many years, he hired me to speak on, on these, 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 these trips we would take. He'd say, Stevie, he called me Stevie. He's Stevie. You think here's the secret to becoming a billionaire or any successful, any success you want to have. That's big. You've got to copy genius. He says, you'll never live long enough to figure it all out. And it's mm. stupid. Try he goes, just right. copy genius, find genius and copy it. He said, that's how I became a multimillionaire when I was 23 years old. He sold his first company to Kmart when he was 23 years old for $74 million. Like in the no 1960s. way. Wow. Yeah, when it was probably worth 500 million, you know, back in those days. Wow. He said, I just copied genius. He said, that's all I ever did. And he said, he goes, I'm not a genius. He was, but he'd say he wasn't. Then he'd say, but I copied people who were much smarter and I did what they did. And people say, gee, you must be, you know, some kind of a marketing guru. And he said, no, I just copied genius. What a, what a tip right there. Hey, wow. Yeah, he was a cool guy. <laughs> um, I got, got another question for you. And, and then, so this will probably be the last one on this idea, but I, I want to hear from you. I mean, you started out interviewing these people, you learned all this stuff, turned it into the great work that it's become. And I, I guess I want to talk about, I was actually asking a friend of mine, you know, I'm meeting with Steve today. What would you want to ask him? And, and I thought it was such a great question. And he said, of all the things you've studied, all the stuff, tell us a bit about maybe some of the top ones that how you've applied this into your own life. And, and what were the differences of applying this in your life? I think, you know, probably the, the, the top thing was right off the bat was the first chapter of the 177 Mental Toughness Secret book. Because people ask in book signing, you learn a lot about what people think about your books during book signings. And I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds, I don't even know how many I've done, lots of book signings. Because you get to interact with people that like the books or, or you know, most of the time they like it because you're at your book signing. But sometimes yeah. you get criticism, but you learn a lot of what they take away. And people ask all the time, they'll say, well, I'm doing one in Los Angeles, matter of fact, next weekend for 500 people. And they, they'll say the same thing usually, even though they're brand new. They say, you know, do the, the 177, you know, <laughs> Metal Tough of Secrets, did you put them in order? And the, and the truth is I didn't except the first one. And the mm. first one is the great ones live in objective reality. It's objective reality. So you're seeing things again, like we talked about earlier, Ben, the way things really are as opposed to the way I wish they were. I'm not mm. living in a wishful thinking, fantasy, delusional world. And I think that that most people do. I think most people do. Not that it's not a hit on their intelligence or their education. It's mm -hmm. a hit on their inability to see things as they are because they can be uncomfortable. Like I've got to see things the way I am. You know, I got to see myself as the way I am. If I'm going to be, if I'm going to get better and be more successful, it's like being an athlete. You have to know what your weaknesses are as well as your strengths. Mm -hmm. You can't say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Well, you might be, but you're still weak in this area. It's mm -hmm. not a, it's not a judgment. It's not an indictment. It's just mm -hmm. a fact. And so I, I think that the objective reality part is not the most fun part, but you, you, you start to erase delusion and you start to live in a world of critical thinking. 
And it starts, mm-hmm. I think, with us. And so I had to, I was interviewing these performers and they're saying, look, Steve, you know, why aren't you, they, they turned the tables on me and they'd say, well, why aren't you more successful? Are, are you a millionaire yet? You're at, at whatever age I was at the time. I'd say, no, you know, I'm making whatever I was making, $45,000 a year, whatever I was making at the time. And they'd yeah. say, well, why is that? And they, they'd be interviewing me, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah. And I'd say, well, I, I guess, because I'm not really sure. And they'd say, well, you've got to look at, you know, you've got to start looking at yourself the way you really are. What are your real strengths and what are your real weaknesses? Don't judge yourself. Just it's just objective reality it is what mm-hmm. it is. What are you good at? What are you not good at? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they pushed me pretty hard with that for a long time to the point where I made it the first chapter in the book all those years later after many interviews, you know, hundreds of interviews with those guys. So that was the one that sticks out to me above anything else. It's a hard lesson, but once mm-hmm. you start to get into a frame of critical thinking and objective reality, it changes the way you look at yourself and your business and everything else. You're living in the real world as opposed to some made up fantasy that people, that a lot of people inhabit because it's comfortable. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. That, that. that is such a great one. And I think the way you said it is not in a judgmental way. And I think that's such an important lesson out of objective reality and critical thinking is you're looking at your strengths and then you're looking at your weaknesses, not to sit there and feel bad, but to be real about where do I need to grow and where do I need to change? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, just to give you one more example, Ben, it's like yeah. just now like a national example. It's like one of the things, you know, again, like in the States, like I love, I love the United States as a country. I think it's a great country in so many ways. And I'm, and I'm glad to have lived here and everything. But, you know, when I, when I look at, when I, when I, when people say, well, you know, again, it's, this is sort of this fantasy thinking, you know, mm-hmm. where people say, well, we're just the greatest country in the world, just across the board. Well, I, I would take exception with that and say, yeah, in some ways we are. But then I look at Canada and I say, you guys, I'm not saying it's an, an ideal system because no mm-hmm. system is, but mm-hmm. you guys have universal health care for your people. You're not putting people on the street like we are when they get old and they get sick and they don't, they're not rich, mm-hmm. you know. Well, that happens here all the time. We're evicting people right now. And I'm not saying I have an answer. I'm not smart enough to come up with an answer. But mm-hmm. you guys, I think, are superior in that way. I know the system isn't perfect, like, you know, just like in the UK with the health system. But mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's better than our system. Now, if you're rich, it's not better. If you're mm-hmm. rich, like, you know, if I get sick, all I got to do is pick up my cell phone and call my doctor. He takes my, you know, it's a VIP mm-hmm. service. He takes my calls or whatever, because I'm paying him a ridiculous amount of money to do that. But mm-hmm. if I don't have that money, like I didn't for a long time, then I'm just on my own. But if I live in Canada or if I'm in the UK, um, there's a, even if I live in Costa Rica, there's a healthcare system in a mm. poor country like Costa Rica. Mm. You know, so I, my point of it is, is people just, they make blanket statements and say, well, you know, I'm this or I'm that, or this country is this, or this business is this or that. I, I would say use critical thinking and break it down. You know, I mean, there's a reason people say, how does Santa Claus, you know, when you're a kid, how does Santa Claus get to all those houses in one single night, going down all those chimneys, coming up, going down. I mean, that's a lot of houses. Here's the answer. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I get fantasy is fun, but not when you're building a business. You can't mm-hmm. live in a fantasy world. You, I think you've got to be in the real world. you got to use critical thinking or you're going to get your lunch handed to you. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about this. I know we were talking this before the interview too. You're, from what I understand, you're going to be launching Mental Toughness University to the public. And I know primarily this was something only available more on the corporate side of stuff where companies would hire you to train their their whole company and their staff and everything. Can, can you talk a bit about that, of what that's going to look like and maybe give us some ideas on that? Yeah, we did so much for, for 25 years. We've done proprietary programs for companies like Johnson & Johnson and GlaxoSmithKline and Microsoft and Procter & Gamble, and et cetera. All these large companies with big sales teams, basically. And so we did customized programs like How to Coach Mental Toughness, where we to train all thousands of managers in these companies over a period of years, of course, around the country mm-hmm. on how to coach mental toughness at the highest level. Like, you know, like when we, we built the system, one of the systems for both Boston Celtics and the States here. So <laughs> high level systems of million dollar teams and you know, and that type of thing. But we never did them for the public typically because uh, we were so busy with corporate for one, but they were proprietary by nature. So we've stopped doing that effectively since the shutdown and we don't really plan on going back. So now we're launching to the public. I'm doing one in Denver for uh, our, our mutual buddy and great guy, Chris Felton. I'm yeah. that's coming up and I got one in Los Angeles next weekend. And, uh, and, uh, and I've got another one in Atlanta here coming up in a few weeks. Um, so we're doing that around the country. I'm hoping to come to Edmonton. I love Greg Shinatka and yeah. Roger Dollywall and all those guys, Real and yeah. Michelle and all those guys and the Michelle brothers and all that. So, yeah. uh, yeah, we're launching it all over. We want to take it to, to this business, you know, because yeah. it's, I think mental toughness. you got so many, as you know, Ben, you got so many entrepreneurs in this company, in this business 
that uh, that have no experience in, in, in entrepreneurship and they think they've got a job. Mm. And you know that's dangerous to walk into a start a business when you think you're gonna you're gonna perform like an employee. It's like it doesn't end at five. Five o'clock is our lunch break. You know? <laughs> then totally. we work till midnight yeah. when you're building. You know. Yeah. Yep. Have no, of course, after you build in your Realme show or your Raja or your, mm-hmm. you know, one of these big hitters. Well, then, yeah, no, then you're then you're not working any. You just work when you want to work. That's a different mm-hmm. thing. But when you're building, you're going to have to be mentally tough. You're going to have to be tough enough to hang in long enough to get good enough to make it work. And mm-hmm. that takes mental toughness. So we're excited yeah. about bringing it out there. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited about that, too. Um, people want to get more information from you. Where, where's the best place for them to connect with you more? Yeah, they can Google me. I got a lot of sites out there. A mental toughness blog is one of our sites. And of course, okay. with the, now, the new How Money Works book I wrote with Tom Matthews, um, howmoneyworks.com. People can check out the book and that type. It's the best, it was the best selling personal finance book in the in the United States in 2020. Uh, we sold about 500,000 copies. Wow. And uh, so we're excited. So we're promoting. I'm, I'm in the media pretty much every day talking about that now since cool. the last year or so. So amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for the time. This was, like I said in the beginning, I mean, uh, I'm not just saying that, but you're truly one of my dream guests to have on here and uh, did not disappoint anyway. It's It's been amazing. I've, uh, I'm sure you hear it lots, but I want you to know you made a massive difference in my life and from a distance and it, it really has. And so many of these secrets in here, so many of these that I've been continually working on applying and getting better at, and how much they've shaped our life. And of course, in, in doing so, a lot of other people's lives too. So thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. It it, it really is amazing. Yeah. It's I appreciate special. it, Ben. I appreciate you saying that. You know, people say it all the time, even book signs, they'll say, you know, I know you hear this all the time. Believe me, as an author, you can't ever hear that enough. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. when you're writing, you, you write these books and you think, I wonder if anyone's ever going to read these books, especially before you, you get, get some, you know, sales and popularity. And uh, you think, I wonder if I'm going to spend a year doing something no one's ever going to read. So I appreciate right. you saying that that it helped you and, uh, and I'm glad. Thank you. Awesome. Everybody, hey, do us a favor. Make sure you share this episode. Tag me on it. Tag Steve on it. Uh, I know on Instagram, I think it's speaker Steve Siebold is his Instagram handle on there. But at whatever platform you're using, rank and review the podcast and really share this one. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal episode that you'll want to go back and listen to many times. If you don't have Steve's books, go and get his books. Get involved in his work. I'm not saying it to say it. This is some of the best stuff you could ever invest your time, money, and energy into is is Steve's work. It's just incredible. So thanks for being with us today. We'll see you all soon. Bye.